Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com we're leaving our dna around all over the place but what we have to be mindful of is when we permit access to break open those cells and and create that dna file From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On the show today, DNA science superhero Don Barry, president and CEO at Luna, a public benefit corporation that's restoring power to the people by giving them back control of their genomic health information for the greater good. What a novel idea. The greater good. So while we would have loved to spend the entire show debating the virtues of Beyond Meat versus the Impossible Burger, we really dig into the very nature of how, from the perspective of consumer and cultural adoption, the very conversation about DNA and its role shaping our lives has come so far since Jurassic Park's Mr. DNA cartoon explainer dude. And yet, the foreboding words of Jeff Goldblum's Ian Malcolm still ring true. But your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. So strap in for an incredible chat about the uselessness of most genetic test kits, genomic bias in the workplace, predictive genetics or Orwellian eugenics, the mystique of the proverbial designer baby, and how DNA is certainly not your destiny. Enjoy the show. Dawn Barry, thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience because, and I'm going to go out on the super geek limb here because this show is about, well, you're going to tell me the hell genetics, genomics, forganics, whatever, I have no idea, but <laughs> I'm just calling this our Gattaca Chattaca and we're going to roll with it. How you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me for the Gattaca Chattaca. Yeah, I feel like I want to be the armchair idiot on this show where you can explain things to me. And sure. I feel like you can even ask me questions about, do you even know about this, bro? And I'm like, well, I, I'm smart, but no, because, <laughs> you know, we're so neck deep into the science and the rationalities and the desires and the approvals of all things about your DNA. And yet there's still an epic struggle to trickle that down to the average, uh, I'll say human patient yeah. person experience with doctors in clinic and 
you know, you've been at this a long time. You're you were at um, uh, Illumina for quite a while when they were building their massive uh, expansions and whatnot. So, where have you come from? What have you seen? If you had like a two minute expository oration on the state of the state. So I've been in genomics or DNA my whole career since coming out of college. And, you know, in the early days of, you know, these personalized medicine, really thinking about using our unique biology as we approach health and disease. So, you know, in the, gosh, when I started about 1998, long time now, you know, just just being able to to get at a DNA molecule was was too cost prohibitive. And the Human Genome Project comes along in the year 2000, and we really start you know as an industry start jamming on the ability to get that data accessible, cheaper, faster, better, high quality, so we can actually read the molecule itself. And then you know about 10 years later, so 2010, you know that this this content of the genome, the content of our of our code of life here in our DNA has become accessible to the point where, you know, you can order a kit from the comfort of your home with a lot of the direct-to-consumer products. And on the other side of the spectrum, the research world, they can sequence, you know, whole genomes in a day. And now we can start applying that information to maximizing our wellness or really understanding um, illness and, and the illest of the ill population. So we're still in the early days of really crunching that data and pulling it all together and contextualizing that data so we can understand the correlations between life's code and, and what ultimately happens in our life as it relates to health and quality of life. So, you know, the, the field's moving fast, still a lot more to go, but at least that information now is accessible to, to most researchers, especially from a, a cost perspective. Yeah, I, I, I remember, I think it was two or three uh, Black Fridays ago, the number one gift that people gave was Ancestry's home kit. And yeah. I was like, really? Wow, we've come that far where people want to know whether they're allergic to caffeine or not. But yet, do they really want to know if they might get cancer or not? And that, where, where do we trip that rift of tolerability and consumer purchase? It's interesting. It's it's such a personal choice. You know, I, I always tell people, don't don't buy these kits just because everybody's doing it or it's a popular thing to do. Like, really think about it. Think about... You know, why do you want to why do you want to crack open that information? Do you want to know, you know, where you came from from an, an ancestral point of view? Do you want to know, you know, health strengths and weaknesses? This is really just an entertainment thing. I want to see how my traits correlate or not to my DNA. Um, do I want to meet relatives sort of in that biological, you know, connection kind of way? Am I comfortable with this data? Even just cracking it open from an insurance point of view. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff to think about here. It's as, as easy as it is to spit in a tube. You really want to think about, why do I want to know this information? What would I do if certain outcomes of the information come true? And, you know, some people would also say, it's not just your DNA, it's your family's. So you can think about it as a family decision because we're all correlated, you know, by genetics to our families. Well, I go back to Doc Brown in, in Back to the Future because I just do that. And should anyone really know their future? And yet, you know, do you really know your future just because you know your genome and it says you might be predisposed to this or this? It's so much more complicated than that, right? We know it's it's not just your DNA. It's also access to healthcare, and it's also thinking about our lived experience, our, our nutrition, our lifestyle, our, you know, the social and structural determinants around us. 
even sometimes, believe it or not, like latitude and longitude and how that affects our metabolism. So we, we always like to say here in Nerdland, like DNA is not your destiny. It, it, you know, for some really nasty diseases, it can be. But for the most part, if we understand our strengths and weaknesses, oftentimes we could play into those weaknesses or really amplify those strengths by thinking about, you know, again, proper nutrition, proper exercise, um, you know, good social circles, staying active, keeping your brain healthy. You know, we can, we can override our biology or at least do our best to override our biology. So DNA is not your destiny. Reminds me of this talk we did at Stupid Cancer many, many years ago. We had a nutritionist health expert guru talking to like 800 people on chemo in their teens and 20s. And she's talking about like juicing kale or whatever. And someone stood up and said, yeah. I'm not going to fucking juice kale on chemotherapy. So yeah. your determinants are very varied in terms of your genes versus your state of mind. You know, I, I think just determinants just means what shit's going to happen because other shit happened that makes other shit happen and then shit happens. Yeah, this is, you know, like most things, it's it's complicated, right? It's it's not just black and white. It's not just binary. This this is, you know, to your first question about, sure, we're spitting in tubes and getting our DNA, you know, back, delivered back to us when we're sitting on our sofa. At the same time, we have so much more research to do because we are, we are beautiful biological systems that there's a lot more going on than our DNA, right? There's our, there's our RNA, you know, helping build the proteins, the proteins doing their thing. There's all the outside influences around us. So it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. It's a very, very interconnected system that we have to, to think about here. And that's now that DNA information is accessible, we can start pulling that web together and see what we can do to make those correlations. But it's, it's not just as easy as, okay, here's a whole web of GATCs, like the cure to cancers in there. It's, it's not there. It's more complicated than that. But we've, we've definitely, with access to technology, sensors, monitors, wearables, People have so much access to their data now. This is a good thing because we can start to see a world where we can pull all that together and, and sort of see what lights up in terms of correlations. Yeah, and I think that this even opens up the door if you want to go geekery-ish more is bioethics and eugenics and designer babies and all these things. And, you know, Jeff Goldblum famously said in the Michael Carton's Jurassic Park, just because you could doesn't mean you should. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with with innovation, right, it's... Oh, gosh, I think innovation, just by definition, we don't really know where it could go, right? So who would have thunk it that a whole bunch of people doing DNA tests, if they all share their information and share something about their identities, that could be used for law enforcement? Like, who who predicted that? I'm sure I'm sure somebody predicted that. But, you know, inherent in any innovation is, is not a clear understanding where it could go. And that's where I you know, always like to think about society and responsible professionals have to wrap their arms around this and, and create the conditions for which we're going to use this stuff and for which we're not going to use this stuff. And it's a, it's a slippery slope, as we saw with CRISPR and gene editing, and a lot of nasty things can happen. So channeling my young adult cancer advocacy hat, we talked a lot in the coming age of social media when it was just getting started to be very mindful of what you post on platforms, because when you apply for a job, someone's going to look back and spelunk your digital footprint. Are we in a place yeah. now where your DNA footprint could pre pre present bias for hireability or liabilities? I, I don't think we're there yet, right? Or you've got to be super mindful. I, you know, I always like to remind people that 
we're leaving our DNA around all over the place, right? It's, it's always sort of falling <laughs> off on us. I know that sounds disgusting, but, it, but it's true. You know, this idea of, of, of I've got to hold tight to my DNA, it's, it, you're leaving it behind. You're leaving it on that water glass, on that pizza crust, on that couch. I know, again, it sounds gross, so it's just sort of a, a little nerdery thinking here. But, but what we have to be mindful of is when we permit access to break open those cells and, and decode that information and create that DNA file, where is it being held? Who has access to it? How is it being stored? Is, is it propagating, meaning, you know, are copies being made, you know, and, and being sent to other places? That's what you want to be mindful of. And this gets at the, the whole data control bit that you want to have control over where that information is used. Because like we already talked about with innovation, you don't know where it's all going to go. So you, you want those files only to be in, in, in the hands of, of mindful operators. And I always say, too, you know, get a file of that information. You have your legal right to that because it's, it's useful, right? Maybe you're not facing any illness right now, but in the future, maybe you do want to ask different questions of that information. And certainly the, the information we know about that data will change over time. So be mindful of where those files are being held. Right, because privacy breaches and whatnot, you know, someone could hack into whatever. There's DNA tests now for your biome and for what diets might work for you. I don't believe in that stuff. You know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen technically, but you might be pretty keto is better for yeah. you or, you know, eating only bones is really good for you or, you know, lay off the <laughs> orange juice, guys. Come on. Like God is what they're going to say to. But I, I, I had a really want to go back to the you know, can science talk person thing? Because, you know, we love to geek in the echo chambers and that's how things get done. I was once asked to talk at a pediatric cancer event to lots of parents and kids were in the room about some of the CAR T stuff coming out that was really yeah. mindful and meaningful outside of standards of care and not to be scared of trials. But the way I had to explain it, you know, I just I just say things that are in my head. Someone said, Matt says the things we think about inside, for better or for worse. I look at, like, if you're going to harness your DNA and not napalm yourself, aren't you really looking at becoming Wolverine? Like, boosting up your own internal immune system so that you can ward off the bad things that would normally get inside you. Is that a fair yeah, yeah. correlation to talk Crayola? I think sometimes, right, it's it's about using, you know, your immune system to better fight for you or better strengthen for you. So I, I think it's a, it's a good analogy. It, it's it's hard to go totally under hood on all the, how all this stuff works. But but yeah, I think we've we've got to think about methods and, and certainly cancer is always leading the way here to make our immune system fight harder for us, fight more specific for us and, and how to boost that. Because, you know, a lot of the, the early cancer detection, right, if we start to think on the other spectrum as we think about, you know, pre-symptomatic every year getting a blood test for cancer, there are, there are working hypotheses that at any time we could have any amount of cancer in our body, sometimes, you know, super just barely detectable, but, you know, is our immune system fighting that off so we never get full-blown cancer? So absolutely, I think your, your Wolverine example is, is, is definitely a good one, and I think these analogies make the science so much more accessible for people to understand. We tend to overcomplicate a lot of this stuff when a basic analogy can be can be really good to connect with people and help them understand. I'd like to talk about one of the TEDx videos I watched of you called There's Nothing More Personal Than Your Genome, which connects to what you said before about DNA is not your destiny. But if I were, you know, let's say I was a parent of a kid who's looking for this, what's the non-scientific takeaway you wanted people to garner from watching that? Yeah, certainly what you said, right? That it's, it, DNA is... You know, it's a personal decision to go down that road. There are plenty of people who 
really believe that it's best to just let the song of life play out. And, and that is fine and that is good. And, and you want to let that be. For people like me, you know, knowledge is power. I think I mentioned in the talk, like it, it was time for me to explore that information because I thought like, look, I'm, I'm a mom. I want to live as long as I can, as healthy as I can. And it was, it was the right time for me to crack open that information. So um, what I want people to take from it is, is what we talked about a little bit early, which is really understand what are your objectives in understanding that information. For me, you know, I learned that the typical course of chemotherapy won't work for me. That was, that's important for me to know. And it was also helped me understand a little bit of the past, you know, having lost my parents. But for the most part, I didn't really learn very much beyond that, to be perfectly frank with you, as much as I'm, I'm a DNA junkie. But other people, you know, they, they learn a lot more. And it, and it can be, um, in some cases, life-changing, understanding you have, you know, relatives you didn't know you had, or maybe some predispositions that didn't manifest, but maybe you have to think about, did they manifest in your kids? So again, this is the, the serious decision that you think about before you, before you go into this journey with your DNA. Back with our guest after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Dawn, I just wanted to let you know before we get back into business is that I may be one of the few people who know that UVM is not UVT. Just I was reading your <laughs> LinkedIn profile and I love Burlington. I've been there. I actually thought it's about great. going there and like, it's not UVT. Why not? VT is Vermont. No, it's UVM. And I'm just reaffirming that you like me and because of that only reason. Thank you for, yeah, that. <laughs> Got to go Latin with those acronyms, right? So Burlington's lovely, and you got fall coming in the East Coast. Beautiful, beautiful place up there. Do do take a visit. No, shout out to Vermont for sure. So you went there. Did you know you wanted to be a scientist? You had a, a, I think you went there for for biology or something. Yeah, I did. I as a as a kid, I always loved biology. I had gardens and pets and. 
um, just a, a love of nature, a love of hiking, and, and, and just generally just, just feeling very connected to life science specifically. And so I knew in going there, and one of the things that attracted me to go there was a, was a strong science uh, program. So, yep, knew I, I knew I wanted to study that. Didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I know that's, that's where I wanted to go. And um, Vermont was awesome in helping me home the science and then really start to pivot specifically into genetics. And I worked in some labs when I was there. So it was, it was a wonderful experience. And especially because you're just surrounded by nature's majesty up there. You, you just can't help but think about environment, think about farming, all that stuff that comes back to life when you study, when you study science and apply it in a way that's meaningful. Yeah. And then you're stuck to New England, went to UConn for business. You got your MBA. And where did that set you off in terms of entrepreneurialism or working for the man? Or how did you get your start to, because we're going to get into what you're doing now. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't have a PhD. And um, I think a lot of people think you got to have a PhD to, to have a career in science. I, I disagree with that. So, I, you know, I had my, my bachelor's degree, went right into the lab, and then found that while I love the science and all of it's super cool, I really wanted to make sure this good science saw the light of the day in, in terms of, of bringing it to bear in the market in a place where people could access it. So kind of begged my way out of the lab in my uh, first job, which was a startup in New Haven, Connecticut. And then, you know, successfully getting out there, you know, began to work in business development and sales, got the MBA concurrent with that. And that's where I really created that bridge between, okay, I know the technology, I was on the bench, or that's just a word people use, that they've did, done science with their hands, and I merge it with the business, and I'm really passionate about wrapping responsible business models around technology. Again, going back to some of our early chat here, innovation can be scary if it's not wrapped in the right way, thinking about the ethics, even thinking about pricing, thinking about promises with technology. So I really love, love, love the business side of, of science. And that MBA helped me bridge the science world into the business world and ultimately into the entrepreneurial world. Yeah. And, and leading to that, you know, what would you say have been maybe the top three or four big, I hate overusing the word innovations, but there have been some really big milestones, at least in the past four or five years that have almost like uh, kicked us up at an exponential level. Well, certainly DNA sequencing technology, there's, I mean, the gene, if you have a chance to watch that on PBS, you'll see like how far we've come. So that that's like foundational. And then I would say the application of that technology to consumers and, and connecting with their biology to healthcare, thinking about that in law enforcement, thinking about that in nutritional security, both crop and livestock, thinking about how we can breed in a, in a more informed way thinking about not just our core DNA, but you mentioned earlier, thinking about the, the importance of these microbial <laughs> colonies that live in us, on us, and around us, and, and influence, you know, everything from how we metabolize to, obviously, in infections. Obviously, we're thinking about that too much these days. But I, I would say that the DNA science, that's a huge innovation. And then the, the applications around that are, are sub-innovations from that that I'm just we've only begun to see the beginning of. Yeah. One of the things I was really inspired by when we, when we spoke before the show was, you know, again, it, it's platitude and hyperbole to overuse the word democratize this, democratize that. Yeah. But in this, you know, in the age of like, remember that who wanted to own your DNA, one of those companies back in the day, like tried to patent DNA or something in breast cancer. Yeah. Like that was a shit show and we don't want that. So if industry is going to have all this data, what role do the people have in this data? And I think you've really, you know, kicked it up a notch to, you know, Emerald's still alive, right? Yes, you kicked it up a notch. 
<laughs> bam. To start, bam, to start something very innovative. <laughs> Let, let's talk about Luna. Sure. Yeah. So, and, you know, thinking about the TED talk that you mentioned, you know, one of the, the themes that I mentioned in that, gosh, was that 2017 now, was that if we're really going to do proper research, we've got to understand not just DNA, not just the medical record that you got, you know, from episodic visits in the healthcare system, but we need to think about that other 70%, the social constructs, the environment, lifestyle, nutrition, lived experiences. We're seeing all this with COVID right now. It's kind of like no duh, like the population density matters, access to healthcare matters, income matters. Okay, so play that all forward. We need to bring that back into, into all kinds of research. And historically, we've, we've largely just been looking at DNA and you have cancer. Okay, what's the correlation? We can be so much more rich in the research that we do and thereby rich in the discoveries that come forward. Not to mention, we have not had a lot of diversity in research, not gender diversity, not race and ethnic diversity, and we know we are all different biologically, right? So if you, if you agree that for discoveries to be inclusive and representative, then, then research has to be so as well. We have to invite people to the table. They're the best curators of their health profile. They have access to all the information I just mentioned. They need to have a seat at the research table. And when they do, and if they do so in a way that protects their privacy, that gives them data control, that's transparent in this relationship of how their data is used and, and what progress could be made, could we envision a future where you have this cooperative effort of personal data sharing and you invite discovery in a way that's not prohibitive and only accessible to really rich researchers, could we, and I'll use the word, Matt, could we democratize Ooh, you know, there it research? Is. Yeah. There you go. I'm, I'm giving it right back to you. Right? I mean, this, this seems very, you know, I think logical and founded in principles of fairness and sharing and being inclusive, but that's not how we've operated in the past. And I, and I think it's time to operate that way. I heard you say something before that, that triggered some kind of synapse in my brain that, uh, you know, disparities and inclusion, you know, do you feel like, I mean, we can go back to Henry Lacks and that crazy story and how horrible white people are, but, you know, to the extent that, <laughs> would, is there a hesitation? Have you seen a hesitation from the black community, from Hispanic communities uh, on trusting, engaging in this type of contributory volunteer science? Absolutely. And not, I mean, gosh, dare I say the, you know, some of... <laughs> Some of the researchers, even sometimes working, you know, with the government, they've they've led a lot of these projects. So it's I, I like to say an earned mistrust. This isn't just people. You know, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable or not. There there is there is evidence in history, and you mentioned Henrietta Lacks, Tuskegee studies, Havasupai Indian tribes. There have been lots of research done that was not transparent. That was that was initiated with a particular, you know, story in mind, perhaps one of curing disease or, or, or getting access to healthcare, that researchers turned around and did something completely different with the information and, and not something that those church participants would have ever agreed to. We've got a, um, an uphill battle to, to make sure we earn the trust of, of historically understudied populations, unfortunately. But I think if we start by really understanding what people need, and again, it goes back to protect my privacy, ask me <laughs> to use my data, make sure I agree with it, 
allow me to delete myself or get myself out of that research if I don't agree with it, and share in the value created from, from the research that I am participating in and sharing my, my data for. I think those are core foundational principles and things we kind of learned in kindergarten, principles of fairness, right? I think if we can establish a system like that that we've, we've been building here at Luna, if we can establish that system, we stand a chance of, of getting people who've historically been, been understudied and thereby underserved into the research equation. Yeah, the metaphor of like, it would be nice if they maybe had a seat at the table. I, I have an anecdote of a, a biotech startup that created a uh, genomic therapy for a, a rare disease community. Turns out they didn't want it because they were happy just being yeah. themselves. And like, that's not a good use of your time, guys, to build something for a community that doesn't want it. You know, I, I, yeah. I want to lean back into your company because you are building this inclusivity idea of having a seat at the table. It is a membership-owned cooperative. How is that different? Yeah, so I would. It's it's different in a number of ways. So one of the ways that's different in in terms of protecting the core essence of being of this platform is that we approach the Securities and Exchange Commission with the proposal that you know data is valuable. We want to treat it as currency by which to acquire shares of ownership um, in the entity, and they qualified us to, to do that. So this is when we say it's member-owned. The more data you share, the more shares of ownership. When value is created in the platform, that value can be shared with individuals in the form of dividends commensurate with their share ownership. So there's a traditional means of, of reciprocity built in here. This is kind of inspiring the co-op thinking. But also what's important here in going back to where does my data live? Who can ac access it? What can it be accessed for? We're literally making a contract with the individuals who share data for a particular reason, which is health and quality of life, and only that discovery. We can't change that. If I get hit by a bus, somebody buys the company, whatever, that, that can't be changed without everybody opting in again to whatever something would be changed into. So this is, this is born out of the whole okay, I do my data, it's stored over here, what if that company changes, what if the leader changes, what if they wanna do something crazy with it? In this model, that can't happen. So that's, that's one way we're protecting that. But then the rest of it is, is really, people are anonymous in the platform, so they're privacy protected. They share one copy of their data, they control its inclusion in, in the system, they can delete it at any time. There's transparency built into the platform, and as I've already shared, there's, there's mechanisms of reciprocity. There's, Certainly, we're going to keep building on this journey of fairness and inclusion and representation research, but those are kind of the, the, the founding principles that we've operationalized already. Yeah, it's it's a marvel that you were able to pull this off, a public benefit corporation. I didn't even know about that until you told me about that. Yeah. What a, what a nice idea. You know these companies, though. I mean, they're Warby Parker, Ben & Jerry's. Oh, they, I, I did not know that. I mean, I, I know the companies. I didn't know about a PBC, but that's they, that explains a lot. There's probably about 8,000 companies that, that have this designation, and they do it so that they have a charter for the greater good of society already, already built into what they're doing. So there's, there's a social good element to this. And you know, I love the, the themes around social entrepreneurship and just good business. Well, you hinted at agriculture a long time ago, back in the Stone Age of maybe 10 minutes ago. And <laughs> I want to I wanna wrap up by asking you one of the most critical questions I've ever asked anyone. Uh oh, drum roll. Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger? Oh my goodness. I've had Beyond Meat and I, I, I do enjoy it. And the first time I did was, this kind of freaks you out a little bit. Um, I'm, a, I'm one of those vegetarians that likes eating vegetables. I'm not one of those that looks to eat food that 
seems like a burger or a hot dog. <laughs> and I really just did a little bit of a double take. So um, I hope those companies can can figure out their path to scalability and, and there's, you know, environmental consciousness there. So, yeah, that's my answer to that. What do you think of them? You're a carnivore. I am a carnivore, but, you know, I... A, not a sponsor. I should just disclose that. We're not doing an ad for them. But at the end of the day, <laughs> I, I like the Impossible Burger. I was very surprised yeah. by it. And uh, I have not had Beyond Meat, so I'm waiting for my little Pepsi challenge to happen someday. Yeah, I love, I love the innovation in agriculture. I think it's super cool. Don Barry, TEDx speaker, genetic geek of awesomeness, president and co-founder <laughs> at Luna. This has been the best Gattaca Chattaca of my life. Thank you very much. Let's do it again. Thank you very much. Thanks for uh, wrapping up the week with fun like this. It's been really great. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.